Luke chapter 22, verse 35. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. And he came out and he proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came. And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they'd kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. About an hour had passed. Another man began to insist, certainly this man was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately while he was speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he told him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and whipped bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophecy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. When it was day, the council of the elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, 
If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. And Father, we do thank you for this story. Lord, we pray that you would help us now as we work our way through it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story is picking up. It's at the very end of of the Lord's Supper. Luke gave a a sort of a brief synopsis of what happened. He only covered on certain points. If you want to get the kind of a fuller picture, a big picture of the Lord's Supper, the place to go is, is the Gospel of John. John devotes about a quarter of his writing towards the Lord's Supper. He has five chapters, chapters 13 through 17, that focus exclusively on the Lord's Supper. And as they're ending the supper, Jesus looks at them and he, he says this in verse 35. He says, when I sent you out without money, belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? So he looks at me and says, you remember when I sent you guys out two by two earlier in the, the ministry? Uh, Jesus had sent him out. He told him, go to villages, proclaim the gospel, uh, tell them of the good news. And if they don't receive you, just just shake the dust off your feet and go on to the next one. Don't take any money. Don't take any provisions. Just kind of go, and I'm going to take care of you. He says, do you guys remember that? They say, yeah, of course we remember. We, we didn't lack anything. You, t- you took care of us. And in verse 36, he said to them, but now whoever has money belt is to take it along, likewise also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and to buy one. He says, things are different now. Like Jesus understood that this night, he was moments away from being arrested, from being betrayed, from standing before the Sanhedrin and then Pilate and ultimately being condemned, that he would go to the cross and die. He said, things are different now. You're going to have to kind of make provision, do your part. In, in my study, there was a quote that came up. Uh, I kind of liked it, but it said, from, it was from the Revolutionary War. And, and the quote was, trust God to keep your gunpowder dry. And like the, the idea was that you take care of everything that you can take care of. You do your part. You put your best effort forward. And then you trust God to kind of take care of you and, and to make provision. Now, when I was a SEAL instructor, there, early on in, in my time as a SEAL instructor, there was one student I'll never forget. This kid, I, I about fell over backwards. I was learning how to, to, to kind of walk this role of being um, a pastor and a SEAL instructor. I was really, it was a difficult time in my life. I remember my, I would go to church on Sunday night, and I'd do the announcements, and I'd come home, and Anna's like, Gunner, you've got to smile. You can't treat them like they're bud students. You can't intimidate them. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. Was I doing that? She's like, yeah, it was horrible. Like, you'll come to the church potluck or else you're going to pay the man. <laughs> Are you listening to me, people? You know, like, she's like, you can't do that. And so I'm like, okay, I got to work on this. And I go to the students. I'm trying to figure out how to, like, work back and forth and figure out my role. And there was this one kid 
that we would refer to as a soup sandwich. A soup sandwich doesn't work. You know, you take two pieces of bread and you throw some soup in there. That's kind of a Navy term. He was a mess. Like it was a, some sort of inspection where I came to him. And if I told you civilians, you wouldn't get it. I mean, his belt was probably a little bit off. That's probably all it was. But it was a catastrophic sort of, I couldn't believe this kid. He was, it was like he wasn't even trying to put forth any effort. And in talking with him, I was more in the pastorly mode going, brother, do you know where you are? Do you know what you're trying to do? Are you like, what's your plan for making it through? Like, this is a Monday morning you had all weekend, and this is what you, you show up with? And he looked at me, and he said, no, God's going to take care of me. God's going to get me through the program. And I was kind of like, oh, you believe in God? He's like, yeah, 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 I believe in God. Well, well what, what do you mean? Like, what's your background? He's like, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm a born-again Christian. I'm like, oh, awesome, brother. We're brothers in Christ. I, I'm kind of, I'm leaving the teams to go be a pastor. Now, I want to talk to you about this because God does do miracles, but he's not going to get you through this program if you're not like putting forth some effort. And so I had this long talk with him. And one of the tools that we had as instructors that we could assign handwritten essays up to like a thousand words or two thousand words. But we found loopholes as instructors how to make it more tedious. So I could ask for a two thousand hand word written essay about something, but I would make them, after every word they wrote, handwrite what number word they were on. So you can turn a 2,000-word essay into a very tedious, because if there's a mistake, they got to start over. I said, hey, brother, what I need you to do, when you get off work tonight, it's due tomorrow morning at 7 a.m., I want a 2,000-word essay on Acts chapter 12, specifically around verse 8. I want you to focus on verse 8. And see how this passage might possibly apply to your situation. He's like, I don't know that I get it. I'm like, well, you might after you read it over and over again. Now, for those of you that are trying to remember what happened in Acts chapter 12, Peter's sitting in prison. He's handcuffed. He's, He's there. And in the middle of the night, an angel appears, takes off his handcuffs, puts all of the guards to sleep, opens up the gates. Peter just like walks out of there. He eventually shows up and he's knocking on the, girl, the door. They'd been praying for Peter's release. This 12-year-old little girl says, who is it? It's Peter. Oh, we've been praying for your release. And she leaves him at the door, goes back and tells everybody, like, well, where is he? Oh, I guess I left him at the front door. Now, the part that cracks me up in this story is this angel does all sorts of miracles. The shackles fall off. The gates open up. The guards are just asleep. But in the midst of this, in verse 8, it says, okay, put on your jacket, put on your shoes. Like, why didn't the angel just put on his shoes and jacket? Like, there was a part that Peter had to do, and then he kind of, the angel took care of the miraculous, and Peter had to take care of what he had to take care of. I think my point in all of this, Jesus is, is showing them that times are going to get hard, and things are changing, and to make provision, to take, in some translations, there's endorsement of man bags, like to t- it says purse, like pick up your purse, which I'm glad the New American Standard just says bag, because I'm not really into the, the guy purses just at this stage in my life yet. 
But it says, you know, make provision. You're going to go on a trip. Make sure you're taking care of everything that you can take care of. If you don't have a sword, then go ahead, sell your jacket and get a sword because you're going to have to defend yourselves. You're going to have to start providing. I'll take care of you. I'll cover the rest. But you've got to do your own. And in the midst of this, he transitions saying, verse 37, he says, For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He quotes from the end of Isaiah 53, the great um, prophecy from Isaiah about the suffering servant, that the Messiah would come and that he would take a great beating for the sins of the world. And as Jesus is saying this, they kind of obviously a couple of them had taken off and they come running back in. Okay, we got two swords. Is this good, Jesus? Jesus says it's enough. We're good to go. Now let's let's leave the Lord's Supper. And in verse 39, they take off. And we read, And he came out and he proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you might not enter into temptation. So the story is that they're at the temple every day. Jesus is teaching. He would be there bright and early every morning. He would teach all day long. When sunset came and it was time to leave, they would leave the temple. They would go down the hill. Then they'd go up the hill on the Mount of Olives. And then outside of the Mount of Olives was a town called Bethany. And that's where they stayed. This time, they just went down the hill into the Garden of Gethsemane. And they were going to pray there. This is a picture of modern day, uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, where they believe that it was. There's a bunch of olive trees there. Gethsemane is a word for olive press. So they would have harvested the olives. They would have pressed them for the oil. They would have done all of this stuff there. There's great significance, or, or maybe not significance, but here in the olive press, this Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is going to go through like the most heart-wrenching prayer leading up to the crucifixion that the the press the weight of what he's about to go through presses down on him this is the the story that we'll see where blood comes out of his sweat just that he's in so much agony and it happens in gethsemane and he he tells the disciples he sets them down he says you guys you just pray that you may not enter into temptation He'd already warned them that in their group of guys, that one of them was going to betray them. They didn't know who. That Peter made the bold profession, Lord, I'll never betray you. I'll, I'll be arrested with you. I'll go to death with you. And Jesus says, brother, you're going to deny me th- that you know me three times before sunrise. And he tells him, pray that you might not enter into temptation. And then I look at this passage, it reminds me earlier in the story of Luke, the disciples had gone to Jesus and they said, Lord, will you teach us how to pray? John the Baptist, his disciples, John taught them how to pray. Will you teach us how to pray? And if you'll turn with me back about 11 chapters to Luke chapter 11 and verse one, it's that story. And after they asked Jesus, how to pray. I'm encouraged by this because these guys, they're not pagans. These are guys who were, who were raised religiously and, and they still had some questions about how to pray. Praying isn't something that comes naturally to us. I think that there's a certain element of practice. There's a certain element of getting to know God and to grow in our relationship with Him. 
And I love that they say, Lord, teach us how to pray. And in verse 2, Jesus responds and he said to them, when you pray, say this, the Lord's Prayer. He doesn't say that, but this is what is known to as the Lord's Prayer. Father, hallowed be your name. Start with focusing on who God is, his holiness, that he's perfect, that he's set apart from us. He goes on to say, your kingdom come. Like recognize that this world that we live in has sin in it. It's, we see bad stuff. There's, it's clearly dominated by the evil one. All you have to do is turn on the news to see all of the bad stuff that goes around. And so he says, pray to him after you focus on him, pray that his kingdom would come, that he would restore this place as he intended. Give us each day our daily bread. Just thank God for the provisions of this day. Like, I'm pretty sure all of us ate breakfast this morning. And if you didn't eat breakfast this morning, it's because you chose not to. Because you made it past the lobby. There was like Starbucks treats, and then all of a sudden it shifted to chocolate stuff. I think Bobby made her special stuff. I, I forget what it's called, but it's delicious is what I call it. So there's, there's stuff. And he says, just give them thanks for your daily provision, that this daily bread. And then verse 4, he goes on, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. Like our flesh is so strong, our propensity to sin and to go away from God, to seek him and say, Lord, help me stay strong. And so back in Luke 22, when Jesus tells him, hey, pray that you might not fall into temptation. He's already warned them that one of them's going to betray. He's told Peter, hey, you're going to deny me before the sun comes up. I've taught you how to pray. You guys need to pray. The situation is severe. And what's about to happen in the next 24 hours is going to change world history. And so after he sets them down, we read in verse 41, he withdrew to them. I love this about a stone's throw away. I used to throw a stone a lot farther than I can throw today. We all have different distances. So it's about. So it's from like five feet to maybe 40 feet. I don't know whether about a stone's throw away. And he knelt down. So Jesus is now all by himself. He's in the garden of Gethsemane in the midst of all of these beautiful olive trees. And he begins to pray. And in his prayer, we see the weight that is on him. In our culture, in our world today, we talk about salvation, that it's this free gift. And there's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. Jesus died. He paid for our sins. He did it all that just through faith we would come to know him. But somehow in this free gift thing, we think it's a cheap gift. And we fail to like recognize the what Jesus went through and the great sacrifice, not only physically, but emotionally that he went through. And as I've been meditating upon this passage this week, the main thing that comes to mind is as I go through this and studying this, that what's driving Jesus to do this? It's his great love that he is love. To think that during this time, he knew who you were and that his love for you is driving him, that he would do this for us, for all humanity that's separated from God because of our sin. He was going to do this to bridge the gap that we could have a relationship with God again. 
And so as he prays, verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This cup that that he's about to undergo, he recognizes. The Bible tells us that he who knew no sin, that Jesus was without sin, he became sin on our behalf. That the, the sin of the world, every single person's sin was placed upon him on the cross. He recognizes the brutality of that punishment that was coming his way. He says, Father... Like if you're willing, if this could, if there was another way for this to happen, is there, if there was any other way, may this pass. But then there is this great phrase that we can all pray, not my will, but yours be done. Father, that, that your will be done. And whatever we have to go through, may you give us the strength to endure it. Jesus became our atonement, our substitute. And as he's in agony, this is a beautiful picture in verse 43. This angel from heaven appeared to him. In the midst of his prayer there in the garden, this angel appears to him, strengthening him, encouraging him, helping him to brace himself for what he is about to endure. And being in agony. When I see agony, one thing comes to my mind. The Olympics back in the 80s. And the agony of defeat. And you see that skier that was supposed to do the long jump that starts doing cartwheels down the side of the slope. It looked painful. You guys all know that one, right? Maybe it was just me back in the 80s. Dan knows. But agony, is, it's, it's this heavy word. He's, it's horrible. He's agonizing over this whole thing. He's praying very fervently. And his sweat became like drops of blood that the capillaries actually exploded, allowing blood to come out of his sweat pores. Falling upon the ground, when he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. So he gets up, he goes over, the whole crowd of guys is asleep. Now here Luke explains that there's sorrow, like they understood something bad is about to happen. And it's their grief that is kind of like putting them to sleep. We've all had those moments where we're in just so much sorrow that like sleep is like one of like the way out to kind of escape it. But at the same time, in other gospels, Jesus kind of confronts him like what you couldn't even pray for an hour. But I love this picture of Jesus's love for these guys. It's not their works that are saving them. He's praying. He recognizes what he's about to go through. He wants them to pray so that they can be strengthened also. If you'll turn with me over to Romans. Jesus is going into this. And Romans 5, 8 is this great passage reminding us. See, so often as we come before God, we, we feel or our inclination is, is that we have to do good deeds, that we have to do good works. And by our good works, then God basically opens his heart towards us and allows us to get close to him. But Romans 5, 8 straightens us out. It says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So in this process of Jesus going to the cross, this great agony, at this time, we weren't even born. Yet God knew who we were and his love for us and preparing for us to have salvation. He went through with this. 
Continuing on in verse 9, it says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. See, God's wrath was placed on Christ. He paid the penalty for our sins. And through faith in him, we avoid that wrath. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. And so through this story in Luke chapter 22, as as he heads to the cross, we're told that through Jesus' work on the cross that we're reconciled, that we have relationship with God again, that when we stand before God, we're justified, no longer condemned because he paid the penalty for us. And his great love here as he's out there praying, he's sweating drops of blood. He goes back to his disciples and they're sawing logs. Guys, wake up. He goes on to say to them again, and he said, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. But Jesus understands the urgency that they need to seek God and to pray with him. And they're asleep at the wheel. And as I look at this, I can't, I, I, it makes me wonder, Lord, where am I asleep at the wheel? Thursday, after we talked to Alberto, I'd kind of locked in, you know, that Anna's dad was going to come up. I told Alberto the good news that, hey, we got Sunday taken care of. He's all worried because their kids have been practicing a song to sing. And I'm like, brother, it's taken care of. I talked with my father-in-law. He's willing to come. He's like, you need to get a hold of, of Carlos to let Carlos know. So that he can get all the people to let him know that church will be happening Sunday night. It's like, brother, we'll take care of it. We'll take care of it. And so then we got here Sunday night. And Daniel and uh, Alberto's son, the youngest son, came. And he was like translating for me. And we've been talking to Carlos. Carlos is like, oh, good, good, good. Because I just wanted to, I've been opening up the church. And just if anybody comes, because if you stop coming to church, you get kind of out, out of whack and you stop coming. And he's like, even if people come, I just wanted to like pray with them, anything. And so then we're all done kind of communicating. We're out front. And he's like, well, why don't we go and why don't we go pray? And I'm kind of like, you know, it's it's going from him to Daniel to me, then kind of back. And we're we have kind of two cultures about how do we do things? And I'm like, do we want to pray right now? Like right here? And Daniel's like, here, (laughs) you know, I got that far. And he's like, no, 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 let's go inside. And so then we got inside and I'm sitting right there and Daniel's sitting right there and Carlos is right here. And I'm kind of looking at Carlos as it's like, do we want to like hold hands and me to lead us in a little prayer and then him to do a little prayer in Spanish? Like, how are we going to work this? And Daniel asks him and he says, no, 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 we're just going to pray individually. So I said, okay. So I kind of like take my knee and I, because I know they take their knee and it's a good sign to, to humble yourself, to get on your knees and to, to bow before the Lord. And I, I go through my little laundry list, 30 seconds. Carlos is still praying. Okay, I can cycle through that list again. And I'll add some other things. I'm like, praying's good. I'm going to do some praying. Carlos is just getting warmed up. Like a a minute passed. Then like five minutes passed. So I'd cycle through my list a couple times. And I'm like, well, well, man, prayer time's good. So I'll just just kind of like expand my, my list 
and start praying about whatever like wanders into my little brain. I'll just start praying. Carlos is still going. We get to like 10 minutes. I kind of look up and Daniel's kind of there and I'm like, I'm going to get back to praying. I'm the pastor. I better pray. I can pray. Like I can 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And about 20, 25 minutes, Carlos sits there. He's like, ah, and he says something. And I'm like, what, what, what did he say? And I was like, he said, isn't it great to be able to rest in the Lord through prayer? And I'm thinking about this text and I'm just going, man, I am such a lightweight when it, you know, uh, on the English side of the, like, we're like on our German blood. We like our bullet points, like get our little laundry list and just say, Lord, this is what I need prayer for. And I can hear, I can just hear Carlos going, gracias, Padre, gracias, gracias, Padre. Just this heart of like praise and and worshiping the Lord through his prayer. And I'm getting so convicted because I know what I got to teach on on Sunday. I'm like asleep at the wheel. And it makes me wonder what what things are the is the Lord like burdening us every now and again, like this week, I got a text message. It came in. Hey, where's that passage that the Lord won't give us more than we can handle? I'm like, oh, that passage doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. And there's like, there's sort of a problem with the thought that the Lord won't give us more than we can handle. It, it puts the emphasis on us. Like we're good, strong people. We can just pile it on our shoulders. No matter how much comes our way, we can just take up the weight and we can endure it on our own. This is totally opposite of the, the, the Bible. Uh, you know, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The reality is, it says, if, if I was to translate that, I can endure all things in Christ who strengthens me. So that as we cling to him, regardless what comes our way, God will strengthen us to endure it. Because there are things in this world that we don't have the strength to get through. Just spending all, all, all week in, 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 the, in the CCU, in Alberto's room right there, whenever the life flight comes in, it comes right down by his window. And I just think, you know, there's somebody's child that's in that helicopter. Like, how do you endure death? Like, we can't. But in Christ, we can He'll strengthen us. He conquered death. But the passage that's so often misunderstood is over in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you turn there with me. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13 is the verse that so often people say, oh, this is the verse that says that God will give us strength to endure like anything, that he won't give us more than we can handle. But... But the reality is what verse 13 says. It says, no temptation dealing with like our inclination to sin, the things that we struggle with or the things that we're lured into. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond which you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you would be able to endure it. So the idea is not just life, it's about temptation and how do we walk strong in the Lord? And many people have memorized verse 13, but very few people know verse 12, which says, 
Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. And when I look at this passage and I look at the disciples who have just been warned by Jesus, first, that one of them was going to betray him, that Peter was going to deny him three times before sunrise. And he stops to pray and he says, pray that you wouldn't enter into temptation. I don't know. They thought, oh, I'm good. I'm really strong. Verse 12 makes it clear. If you think that you're good and you're strong and you can handle whatever's about to come your way, take heed. That means that's a big warning side that you're about to fall because in our own strength, we can't stand. And then as we get into verse 13, I think of the great from Joseph in the Old Testament. Like it says, ah, regardless of what comes your way, whatever temptation, God will always provide a way out. And how did Joseph get out of it? He ran as fast as he could. As she was trying to seduce him, he just left his coat and took off running and got out of it. And sometimes that's what we need to do to get out of the temptation. Okay, back to Luke chapter 12 or 22. So as Jesus is warning them to pray that they might not enter into temptation, and, and my prayer for me is like, like me and I think all of us, like hopefully we're not asleep at the wheel. God has provided this great avenue that we could pray to him always, that we could reach out to him, that we could talk to him, that he'll strengthen us, he'll encourage us. And in the other gospels that Jesus comes and he addresses them and says, what, you could even pray for an hour? Now don't answer the question. But how many of us, like our standard for prayer is like, oh, my, my baseline for prayer, the standard is that one hour that I'm just going to set the timer for one hour. I'm going to turn off my phone and I'm going to pray for an hour. If you're like me, you'll start praying. Then you'll start thinking of all of this stuff that has nothing to do with it. Or you wake up and go, oh, what happened? And so I'm really convicted, especially by Brother Carlos, like to really increase my prayer life, to try to be focused and disciplined about speaking to the Lord. But as he's talking, this this crowd comes up, verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? He tells Judas he knows exactly what's going on. Judas comes up, gives him a kiss. Oh, Lord, how are you doing, master? And Jesus goes right to the chase. Oh, you're betraying me with a kiss. Can you imagine Judas like, oh, man, he totally knows. He knows everything. And as Jesus talks to him, those are, that are observing the crowd and that this is like a lynch mob coming, but they're going to arrest him. They're going to try and they're going to crucify him. They see what's going on in verse 49 and they say, Lord, shall we strike with a sword? So they ask, Lord, is this the time you just told us to get sword, to have a knife? Is this the time to use it and to defend ourselves? And before Jesus gives the answer, I just love Peter. It doesn't say Peter here, but we know it was Peter. Peter tries to lop the guy's head off and he cuts off his ear. And Jesus says, stop it. Don't do that. I said, cut it out last time. And Larry was on me. He said, hey, that's already what they were doing. He was trying to cut off his head. Peter was not a warrior. He was a fisherman. And so he, he cuts this guy's ear off. And Peter gets a lot of criticism. Like, oh, he tried to go to violence right away. Like if you look at the other gospels. But Jesus just told them to get a sword and defend themselves. 
But in this situation, Jesus, they've been trying to arrest Jesus for the last three years in his public ministry, but he always eluded them. And the only time that they are going to arrest him this time is because it was Jesus's time, because he was allowing himself to be taken into custody. They did not put him to death, but he chose to give his life for our sacrifice. And as this guy's ear gets cut off, Jesus picks up his ear. He says, stop no more of this. And he touched his ear and he heals him. Can you imagine this slave's response? I've never had my ear cut off, but I imagine it's a horrifying experience to like reach up and not feel that little piece of skin that we so like filling there. You know, it's like, uh oh, that's really, really bad. And then all of a sudden for Jesus just to touch his ear and to heal it and to restore it. It's like Jesus is Lord. He's able to do miracles and to restore things without any problem. And then after he heals the guy's ear they're I don't know if they're silenced or what. But then Jesus looks at him. He said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him. Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would would against a robber? You're coming after me in the middle of the night getting a little uh, a little army put together like I'm a I'm a wanted criminal that's a danger to society you're coming out here to arrest me in the middle of the night he goes on to say I taught with you daily in the temple you did not lay hands on me when I was in the temple teaching in front of everybody why didn't you arrest me there well we know that as their anger against him grew his popularity increased also and we were told previously that they wanted to arrest him. They wanted to put him to his death, but they were afraid if they took him into custody publicly that the people would revolt and they'd, 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 they'd get angry with them. And so they needed to come up with this plan to take Jesus privately so it wouldn't cause this big outroar. He goes on to say, but this hour and the power of the darkness are yours. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. So as they take Jesus into shackles, roughly dragging him there, we're going to see that he's going to be beaten along the way. Peter kind of follows at a distance. Peter, who had made the great profession, Lord, I'll be arrested with you. I'll even die for you. He's following in the shadows. And we're going to see this denial of even knowing Jesus three times. In verse 56, a servant girl seeing him as he sat in the firelight, looking intently at him. So the, the fire's crackling, it's dark, it's pre-sunrise. People's faces are kind of shadowed and look different and, and under firelight. That guy looks familiar. And finally she pieces it together. And she says, this, this man was with him too. But he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. Peter who had been given the warning by Jesus, like Jesus, like gave him the. he said, listen, you're going to deny me three times. You think he'd be on his, uh, his guard for this. But even with Jesus's warning, he still denies that he knows Jesus. He's not even denying that he he doesn't deny that he's following after Jesus, that he believes in Jesus teaching. He simply denies that he even knows him. A little later, another psalm and said, you are one of them, too. But Peter said, man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began 
to insist. Certainly this man also was with him, for he is Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. This is powerful. We're going to see like in verse 63 through 65, the amount of pressure that Jesus is under. He's taking beatings, being punched in the face, being spit on, being mocked, being scourged. In the midst of this, of this great stress and agony that Jesus is undergoing, Peter's off on the side. He denies the Lord three times. The rooster crows and Jesus has the love and the compassion for Peter that as he does it the third time to look at him and to let him know, listen, you just denied me that third time, just like I told you. And it might seem simple, but I believe that Jesus loves Peter so much and he's so working in Peter's life. In the gospel of John, when we look at the story, they use the word coal fire. And then at the end of John and John 20, when, when Peter early morning, there's another coal fire and Jesus kind of restores him. As they led into this, the last, one of the last things in the Lord's Supper, remember, Peter, or Jesus tells to Peter, listen, Satan is going to um, thresh you like wheat, but I'm praying for you that you'll be strong. You're going to stumble, but you'll be lifted up and you'll encourage the brothers. Jesus understands that in this process of Peter's life and his stumbling, like he's being refined and he's going to come out strong. And there Jesus taking his beating to look at Peter, to acknowledge Peter right as he's doing this, as he's being beat up. Peter knew exactly. And Peter remembered at that moment the word of the Lord, how he told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. Like Peter, as soon as Jesus looks at him, he's like, I just said, like, I'd be arrested with them. I said I would die with them. He told me I'd deny him three times, and I thought he was crying. There's no way. Denied three times, and he remembered. He looks at me. He's Lord. And he's so heartbroken. And how the Lord would use this in Peter's life, because by the time we get to Acts 2, Peter's a bold, different man. And I believe that through this process of failure and brokenness, is what God used to strengthen Peter and to turn Peter into the man that he is. And so sometimes when we have our failures, it's not that if they're total and complete. God uses those to mold and to shape us. And in the midst of this, verse 63, we read, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophecy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things to him, blaspheming. So they put like a bag over his face. And these are hardened Roman soldiers that were brutal. Don't think like a light slap in the face. These guys like probably threw an elbow into his face. Like they're beating him ruthlessly. Oh, who hit you? And remember, what did Jesus say right in the midst of the swords? This must be fulfilled. From Isaiah 53. So if you'll turn with me over to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is being, it's, it was this written some 700 years before this instance. And in this story, we just read over that these guys are mocking him in about three verses. 
But the significance found in Isaiah 53 says, verse 1, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a rod out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, of man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastised, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of many people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He, would, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. That's the verse that he said earlier. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. And he interceded for the transgressors back to Luke 22. So this great prophecy found in Isaiah, so accurate in what happened to Jesus, they said that there's no way that this could, it had to have been written after the fact. But when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls almost 2,000 years after the fact, and that it was from, they knew that it was from about 300 years before the birth of Christ, that the copy of Isaiah that they had, that it was virtually 100% pure, word for word, especially Isaiah 53. All of the skeptics said there's no, that, that prophecy, it's just more than we can wrap our brains around. And so in verses 63 through 65, as these Roman soldiers are beating Jesus, as they're spitting on him, as they're blaspheming, this is Isaiah 53 being fulfilled. And he's doing it. So that we could be made white as snow through the blood of Christ. He's doing it for our sins. This is what our sin required. And this picture of love is more than we can comprehend. This went on till daybreak. And in verse 66, we read, When it was day, the council of the elders of the people assembled, both the chief priests and the scribes, 
And they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. So Jesus, battered, bloody, bruised, they wheel him before their council of the Sanhedrin, some 70 people. They say, Are you the Messiah or the Christ? And Jesus responds to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. If I, if I tell you that I'm the Messiah, you're not going to believe me. And he goes on to say, if I ask you a question, you're not going to answer my question. And in verse 69, he says something absolutely profound. He, he says that he's not going to answer them, and they're not going to answer his questions. But what he says here is, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And we skim over this and we don't we kind of miss the whole implication. But what Jesus says here, he quotes from Psalm 110. And what does Psalm 110 say? I'm glad you guys asked. We're going to go back there. <laughs> Psalm 110, Jesus is quoted from repeatedly. And in Psalm 110, often is titled the exaltation of Christ. Jesus asked his scribes and Pharisees as he did the triumphal entry as, as he addressed them. How does David say to the Lord, you're, you're my Lord, when it's like his son? And in Psalm 110, we read this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over the broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So going back to Luke 22, Jesus makes this simple statement. Hey, I'm not going to tell you because you're not going to believe me. If I ask you a question, you're not going to answer me. But from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He quotes this psalm. They would have known it. They had it memorized. It was a key thing for the whole Passover. So when he says this, look at their response. Based on that, they said to him, are you the son of God then? They clearly understood from his statement. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you telling us that you're the son of God? Are you saying that Psalm 110 is you're fulfilling it? They got it right away. And so when people in our culture say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God, that's an absolute misunderstanding of, of Jesus's life and his testimony. They understood clearly. And Jesus replied to them, yes, I am. Or other, literally it says, it is as you say. Jesus clearly acknowledged that he was God, the Messiah, the Christ to them. And in verse 71, they're just like, hey, game over. We don't need any more. We have our evidence. We're good. What further need do we have of testimony? We don't need to talk to other people that say that he said that he was the Messiah. He's on record before the Sanhedrin acknowledging that he's the Christ. For we have heard it ourselves out of his own mouth. And chapter 23 says that the whole body got up and brought him before Pilate. 
This is what started his trial. Jesus was executed for claiming to be God. And he proved it through his miracles, through the prophecy that he fulfilled, through his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is a powerful point to end on. Because the question is, who did Jesus claim to be? He claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ, our Savior. And what have you done with him? Have you believed upon him for salvation? Like, this is huge. This is why we give away the Case for Christ books. Lee Strobel did all of his research. It's a great book for you to read through. And the little slogan, evidence that demands a verdict. Like, we have to do something with Jesus. There's only two options. We accept and believe or we reject him. Those are the only two. And I believe that it's worth our study and our investigation of who he is. And for those of us who have trusted in Christ as Savior, when I look at this story, I'm reminded again at his great love for us, what he went through to give us this relationship. He loved us so much. Like Philippians chapter 2 tells us that he being God humbled himself and became a man and led this perfect life that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf as our example, as this beautiful picture of love. And on Mother's Day, you have to make a Mother's Day point. Like all of us have a mom. And moms in many ways are like this example of like selfless, sacrificial living for their kids. And when you're kids, you just don't get it. But if your mom is still with you, make sure you like give your mom a hug today. Everybody take a bunch of flowers. We got extra. Bless your mom. But to see Jesus in this service of like demonstrating what true love is, that he gave himself for us. And to see these disciples sleeping, you know, from sorrow, but I'm, I'm convicted this week for the Lord to like renew my passion and my, my, my fuel for like communicating with him and praying to him and seeking him throughout the day. Like he's revealed his word to us. Like we can know more about him. We can spend time with him. We can grow in our passion for him. And father, we do thank you so much for this day. Lord, I thank you father for Christ. Father, we thank you that your plan that was established before the foundation of the world was fulfilled through Christ. Lord, we thank you that he came, that he lived the perfect life, that he that was without sin, Lord, that he who is innocent, Lord, was willing to come, was willing to, to bear the penalty and the payment for our sins. Father, I pray that you would help each of us, Lord, to come into understanding and to experience your love. That it wouldn't be just something that we talk about, that Jesus died on the cross. But, Lord, that we would have this three-dimensional relationship with you, that you would um, allow us to just to allow, incorporate you into our lives, that you would be just a true part of who we are. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you and talk to you through prayer, that we can cry out to you in good times and bad. 
Father, I pray that you would help us to be a praying people, that we would come to you in our need. Father, that you would strengthen us, that you would encourage us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.